Genesis 1, 24 through to chapter 2, uh, verse 3. And I'm going to read it for us. I'm sure the words that you know very well. Um, they come towards the end of the, the first of the um, creation accounts. And they just sort of um, stop just as the second creation account uh, begins. Verse 24. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food, and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he was doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beautiful uh, picture painted of your work in creation and of your purposes for us the people that you've made and that you love. We pray that you would help us to learn wisdom from your word, to find that our work and life is shaped by you, and to find a wisdom that helps us to transform the world around us as we walk with you. Use even my words, I pray, for uh, your work in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, for those of you um, who weren't here last time, we started a little series of um, Sunday talks, Sunday sermons, on wisdom to live by. We're trying to think about um, how we live our lives day by day, and what the Bible has to say in terms of what it calls wisdom. The idea is not simply that we come up with a selection of ten top tips for each of these subjects, because in the end, they just simply be my ten top tips, and they may or may not be relevant to you. What we're trying to do is say, what shape does the Bible give to a wise life? Or put in even more biblical terms, what foundation does it give us for how we live? You may remember last time um, I nearly broke into song partway through my talk because um, whenever I start talking about the parable that Jesus tells about this, um, I can't help myself. It's the wise man built his house upon the rock and all of that. You remember that one? And you get the wise man built his house upon the rock and the rain came tumbling down and the rain comes down and the floods go... Yeah, whoosh, come on. You've got, to, you've got to go. The version I do is whoosh. Um, no, you don't do whoosh? Okay. 
They do in Blue School Nursery. Um, and, uh, and the house on the rock stands firm. Uh, and then the foolish man comes and builds his house upon the sand. And the rain comes down, the floods come up, and the house on the sand falls. Flood. Very good. The point about the parable that Jesus uses is to say something along these lines. If we're building the house of our lives, it's the metaphor of, of building a life, you and I could build life that looks very similar from the outside, using pretty much the same bricks, same mortar, same plan, same roof, looks great. The question that Jesus poses to his listeners and poses to us is not so much what bricks and mortar, what, what precise stuff do we do with our lives, but what are we building it on? What foundation are we standing on? For our lives. Because Jesus was saying it's that, the foundation on which we build, rather than so much the, the bricks and mortar with which we build, if you like, the outer stuff. It's the inner stuff, the foundation on which we stand, which will make the difference in terms of whether we stand the test of time and actually be on this into eternity. And Jesus was talking about what it means to build lives based on hearing the word of God and responding to it. In other words, putting God first. And in the Old Testament, we looked at this last time as well, that's described as the fear of the Lord. It's a funny old phrase from the first chapter of Proverbs. It appears a few times in the Old Testament where the writer says, um, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a very well-known phrase from the Old Testament. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Another way of translating that Hebrew word for beginning is foundation. In other words, if you want to know what the foundation looks like on which the wise person builds that's going to stand the test of time. It's wisdom. And wisdom in the Bible has its essence in the fear of the Lord. Not being afraid of God. That's, again, not what the writer means. It actually means simply putting God in his right place. And we were saying last time, if you fear, uh, you know, if, if you're afraid of spiders and there's a spider in the room, it doesn't really matter what else is happening in the room, you're absolutely fixated on the spider. You know, there could be a fire, you know, over here and floods coming over here. But if there's a spider you're afraid of, that's going to take your attention. And actually, there's a little bit in the Bible in a positive sense of saying, well, actually, if I'm putting God in his rightful place, if I recognize God as both creator and redeemer, the one who's made all things and loves all things, if I treat God as he truly is, then actually all the other fears of life, all the other things I'm worried about actually get put in their proper perspective. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what does a wise life look like? Well, we've picked, uh, not quite by random, but tried to pick a good range of different parts of life to look at week by week. And this week, we're going to ask the question, what, is a, what does wisdom for working life look like? What does wise working uh, look like? And before you switch off, that is still relevant, um, even if you're in one of two categories. For some of us, the last thing we want to hear about on a Sunday is work, because that's pretty much the rest of life. But actually, the Bible would want to say to us, if we live life in compartments like that, actually, it, it impoverishes both. It impoverishes our worshipping life on a Sunday, but it also impoverishes our working life that could be much richer and more fulfilling if we connect up the dots between the two. Of course, there's also plenty of us here who right now aren't in paid employment, either because we've retired or because we're looking for work, or because we're caring for children, or because we're taking a career break, whatever it is, there are plenty of reasons why people aren't in paid employment. But I want to suggest that what the Bible has to say about work isn't just relevant to when you get a payslip at the end of the month. It's relevant to all of those parts of life that we rest from. It's not a bad working definition of work. Your work is what you take a rest from. It's the way Genesis 1 and 2 sort of cash it out, isn't it? 
God rests on the seventh day from his work in creation. Your work might be what other people would see as simply menial tasks, but if it's your work, you probably rest from it at some point. If you're caring for your home, caring for your kids, if you're looking for work, for that matter, whatever it is you're doing day by day that you need a rest from, whether that's a holiday or a day off or an afternoon with your feet up, that's your work. The really interesting thing about Genesis is that the very first sentence of the whole Bible, the very first thing we're told about God is that he works. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. And at the end of that chunk that, we had read, that I read for us earlier, it said he then rested from his work of creation. It's an amazing thought, actually. The very first thing we're told about God isn't some sort of abstract fact. You know, we're not told God is loving, though he is. We're not told God is powerful, though he clearly is. We're not told um, God is just, though he is. What we're told is God worked. God created. Work isn't a little peripheral bit to the real stuff of life. Work somehow describes something innate to God. The very first thing we're told about him is that he worked, that he created what did his work look like? Well, I want to suggest that what you find in Genesis 1 is a pattern of work that describes pretty much everything you and I might do in what we might call our working lives. That God, on the one hand, gives order out of chaos, and on the other hand, brings creative fruitfulness to whatever he does. And I think those two things, bringing order out of chaos and creative fruitfulness, are the the sort of left and right hands of what work looks like. You you find it in Genesis 1 in this beautiful um, theological poetry um, of of unpacking something of who God is and what he does in in the days 1 to 3 of this creation poetry. Days 1 to 3 is all about bringing order out of chaos. Look what it says in verse 2. The earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And what you find is that God brings division and order by, to start with dividing light from darkness, and then dividing the land um, from the sea and so on. What you find is this order bringing. I'm sure you're going to think this is a massive stretch. But the fact is, you bring order out of chaos every day and in all sorts of ways. You're bringing order from chaos, actually folding the washing or just rediscovering your child's bedroom floor. You're bringing order out of chaos when you're adding up a column of figures or punching figures into a computer. You're bringing order out of chaos when you're sorting out the processes and policies of your company or when you are rearranging a window display in a shop. You're bringing order out of chaos in almost every aspect of everyday life. It's a very core human need to bring order out of chaos. And we sort of relegate it to a sort of, well, of course we do that. It's there, right in the beginning of the Bible. It's a fundamental part of who God is, that he brings order from chaos. Don't downplay those things that are part of your life and your work. They have value. They are part of God's creative work, bringing order out of chaos. And then what he does in days four, five, and six in this picture of creation is he brings fruitful creativity. So he brings the sun and the moon. He creates the creatures and the plants. And this incredible creativity that God pours into 
this order that he's brought. In other words, order doesn't, isn't meant to simply be sterile and fixed. There's meant to be a creative fruitfulness to it. Um, there's a wonderful children's book, which I meant to bring with me, but of course forgot and left at home, called Something Like Wonderful World. I think it's by Nick um, Butterworth and Mick Inkpen, one of my favourite um, children's books. Um, and um, every page of it is just full of creatures. And there's an entire page which is full of creatures that I didn't think existed. When I first read it to my kids, I just thought it was a made-up series. And then the first time I heard of the slow loris, I had to go back and go, oh, hang on, they're real. They really exist. You know, pink this and pink that and slow loris. I mean, there are some amazing creatures. And actually, you only have to watch, you know, one of the thousands of nature documentaries that we now get to see on our TV screens. And if you have any sense of wonder at all, which we all have, there's that sense of the staggering creativity of God. There are creatures that you look at, and if we weren't so familiar with them, we would assume they came off a Star Wars set. I mean, the rhino alone is a bonkers-looking animal, or the hippo, actually, even more so. You think if that were wandering around on Tatooine in Star Wars, you'd think they'd gone a bit far. There is something about the creativity at the heart of the world in which we live that should give us pause. There's also something about the fruitfulness of creation about how it extends and multiplies and fills every corner. There is no part of the earth where you can go and find absolutely nothing. It's an astonishing array. That's the other half, the other hand, if you like, of God's work. God's work is on the one hand bringing order out of chaos. We know what that looks like in our day-to-day lives. But also he brings fruitful creativity. I wonder in what part of parts of your lives you're being fruitfully creative. You might be being creative as an artist. You might be creative in music. But you also are being creative when uh, you're a teacher in a classroom presenting something in a way that is going to grab the attention of these kids and, and present it in a new way. You're being creative as a leader in a team when you're helping people to be the very best they can be and, and, and bringing the best out of people. You're being creative when you're looking at your house and thinking, well, how could we, I don't know, rearrange the furniture and make this room feel better and we can relax better in it or get a better night's sleep. There is a creativity that is to do with imagining what is not yet and bringing it into being. That's the heart of creativity. Imagining what is not yet and bringing it into being. You're being creative when you write that letter to a friend that brings them life. You're being creative when you actually throw a lovely birthday party for your kids. There's a whole creativity to life that is at the heart of what God is doing in this work of creation. And then, here's the pinnacle of it. It's what I started our reading with. We find that what God does is take this work and hand it to us. Verse 26 of chapter 1. God said, let us make man in our image in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all creatures that move along the ground. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Do you hear what God's doing there? He's giving to every human being, every woman and every man, every child, he's giving them the job, the work that he's been doing to subdue the earth, bring order out of chaos, and to fill it and be fruitful. He's saying, what I've just been doing, now you're to do. 
And the language of image takes that a little bit further. Now, in the ancient world, the image of a ruler uh, represented not simply what they looked like, and the point of Genesis is not that you and I look like God. That's plainly absurd. The idea of image in the Old Testament is that it represents God's authority. It's a bit like if you had a banknote in your pocket and you pulled it out and it's got a picture of the queen on it. Her picture on a stamp or on a banknote represents the authority of the state. Okay? It's not so much what it looks like her. I mean, it does, but the point isn't so much what it looks like, it's what it represents. And um, sometimes a statue would be placed in a, in a big city uh, back in ancient times of the ruler, and it was the fact that it represented their authority over that place. They ruled, if you like, on their behalf. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we have something of God's responsibility for, authority for, this world that he's made. To be those who bring order out of chaos. To be those who bring a creative fruitfulness to it. But to do it on God's behalf. And if there's one thing to take away from this morning about our working lives, it would simply be this one. I need to be able to ask the question of everything I do, would God do this? Or what would God be doing in this circumstance, in this context? If I'm being dad to my kids, am I saying to them the sort of things that God would say to them? Am I being the sort of person that that is the image of God for them? In my working life, however menial I might think of my task, am I doing the sort of thing that that brings order from chaos, that is fruitfully creative? Is this godlike? Now we, we we feel quite uncomfortable with that language. I mean, even the phrase godlike, you know, is used in a very negative sense, you know, the one who sets themselves up as God. But the whole point of the language in the Bible is that we don't set ourselves up instead of God. We simply recognise the responsibility he's given us. We recognise this incredible privilege we have to bring order to a chaotic world and to bring creativity to what would otherwise be sterile. It's not too much of a stretch, although it sounds it, to say that when you are folding a bunch of washing, you can do it for the Lord. It's bringing order out of chaos. I know it seems really silly. But actually, it fits. It's part of what it is to be a created human being. As much as standing at the front of church preaching a sermon, teaching a bunch of kids, doing an operation in a hospital, sweeping the streets, whatever it is. So how would we know? How do we know if our lives are are lived in this wise way? Well, I just want to pluck out of Genesis 1 and 2 four litmus tests that might help us just to sort of look at what we do and ask the question, is this wise? Is this a wise way of working? Is this me being fruitful uh, and and bearing the image of God? Uh, There's plenty more one could do. I'll just put, put these four out. The first is this. Does my work respect and care for the created order, the stuff of this world? It is really interesting, isn't it, that the first thing we're told about God is not some sort of just theory about him, an an aspect of his character. It's what he does with stuff, the material stuff of this world. He, He makes stuff. He orders stuff. He's creative with stuff, the material stuff of this world. It's not somehow unimportant and unspiritual to him. It's the first thing we're told about him, that he's the creator and the shaper 
and the moulder of this world. So one of the very first questions we have to ask about the work that we do day by day in our homes or in our workplace or both is, is my work respecting and caring for this stuff that is clearly precious enough to God that he's made it? Uh, if you might remember this as a child yourself, or you might be in a position, if you're a parent now, to be already experienced this from the other perspective. But you know those things that kids make at school and bring home really proudly. And you look at them as a parent, if you've been a parent in this position, and think, what do we do with this then? And, and it sits on a shelf very proudly for a little bit, and, and you leave it a couple of years, dust it every now and again, and then you get to a point where you dare to go, what should we do with this? Should, should we maybe put it in the loft? You know, I mean, no, 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 no. no. Um, and, and then a few years later you go, well, you, do you really need this anymore? I mean, you know, we're just throwing some things away. You wait for the explosion. And it doesn't matter how covered in dust it is, it doesn't matter if bits are falling off it, it doesn't matter how long ago it is since they did it, or even if they can remember making it. The fact is, it's precious to them. Why? Because they made it. Because they've put something of themselves into it. Well, if that's true of a little kid making a bridge or a chair or whatever it is, how much more true must that be of God, who has made all things, is behind all things. And you and I, at times, trundle our way through the world that he's made as if he doesn't care question I have to ask of my working life is, does it care for and respect the created order that God has made and loves? Now, we tend to give that labels to do with sustainable living, environmentalism, care for the environment. Actually, the Bible just calls it wise living. Looking at the world that God's made and saying, well, he counts it as precious. Me too. It's his world. He's made it. In my working life, am I respecting it? Am I caring for it appropriately? Here's a second litmus test, perhaps even more obvious. And that is, is my work properly and healthily relational? Now, depending on the work we do, some of us work you know, primarily on our own, some of us work in groups, some of us spend our days primarily on our own and maybe interact with neighbours or friends or family or in church primarily, but whatever it is, we do have a gut sense that as human beings we are fundamentally relational beings. The interesting thing is that right in the midst of God working, it's clear that he is too. I don't know whether you noticed it when I read it out. Verse, very first verse I read, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now the fascinating thing about that is that that's not just the sort of, that's not the English translation making something up. That's there in the Hebrew. It's the, all of those um, pronouns, pronouns? Sorry, help me out. Anyway, are, are plural. They're collective ones. They talk about us, we, our. Now, the theologians have argued about this for thousands of years, and we're not going to solve it today. There are two possibilities there. One is simply that there was some sort of ancient idea of a sort of angelic host, almost the sort of company of heaven, and God was having a conversation with them. The Christian perspective would be to say, are these the first tastes that we've got, the first glimpses we've got of what we call the Trinity? God being Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That even in his very self, God is not on his own. That God is relationship, even in his very self. There is nothing about God that is solo. And that when God works, he never works simply solo. Now actually, even if we're working primarily on our own, in general, our working life interacts with other people. 
Maybe it's investing in other people. Maybe we manage other people. Maybe we have colleagues, other people. Maybe we work for other people and are delivering stuff for other people. The Bible simply say on every page of it, don't just treat the stuff of creation as precious to him, but also treat the people that God has made as precious to him. How is my work impacting the people that God loves and has made? It's very clear that... um, Genesis 2 is, is painting a picture of the way in which we have been given to one another to work as a team. It says it's not good for Adam to be alone, and so he creates Eve. Now, Eve is called a word that we wince at a little bit because it sounds a bit subordinate and a bit negative. He says that Eve is to be a helper. But actually, the Hebrew word for helper isn't subordinate at all. The Hebrew word for helper is simply, it means a partner. It's actually used of God quite a bit. And so unless you think of God as subordinate to you, that's not the point. The fact is that Eve and Adam are meant to be partners together in this work they've got, which is caring for the garden, tilling the ground, bringing food, and and creating order, naming the animals, doing all of those sorts of things. Order, creative fruitfulness, but they're not meant to do it on their own. They do it in the complementarity of male and female and family together. Does that reflect your working life? Two more litmus tests. There's a litmus test to do with, are you working within the God-given limitations that are there? Now, that sounds very odd. None of us like limitations. It's always a negative. In this case, though, the limitations that God places are for our good. So here's the first limitation. God only works for six days. And then on the seventh, he rests. Now, there's not a thought that God is somehow tired I mean, we think of rest as something you do when you're exhausted, yeah? But actually, in Genesis 1 and 2, God doesn't get exhausted. God's God. He doesn't get exhausted. It's not like God gets to the end of six days and goes, gosh, I've overdone it a bit. I, you know, I sort of run out of puff. It's God. God's the creator of the universe. God is infinite and beyond all things. It's not that God gets to the end of himself after six days, but that God limits his creativity to those six days and then rests. When we rest, what we do is that we are naming the fact that we are not to be defined by our work any more than God is simply defined by his being creator. Because God is not just creator, God is also redeemer. God is also our parent. God is our friend. God is the one who loves us through and through. God isn't just creator. He stops creating. He rests. That's why the variety in our lives, if if you're in paid employment, then taking that day off and taking it properly. And if you're not in paid employment, finding some pattern of life that gives you a variety, that gives you a day or an afternoon, a period of time that says, I'm doing something different, is so important. Because we're not to be defined by just one bit of what God's given us to do. Now, whether that's a Sunday, whether that's another day in the week, it doesn't happen to be Sunday for me. I pick Saturday, that's my family day, that's when I do other stuff. Finding a time, a space that says, I'm going to take this limitation God has placed as a gift. There's another limitation in here as well, which I haven't really got time to go into, but in Genesis 2 and 3, when God says to Adam and Eve, unlimited fruit and veg, you can eat from any tree, any plant in the garden, except, and here's the limitation, not that tree. And he doesn't do it by saying that tree's evil, he simply says it's good, but it's not for you good. It's a limitation. Don't eat from it. It's a limit. It's a choice. You and I have limitations on our working lives all the time. We have to choose 
do we go with it? You've got the limitation of integrity. There are certain things you cannot do in your working life and remain a person of integrity. It's a limitation. You have to choose. Are you going to step over it or stay within it? There's the limitation of honesty or the limitation of um, just decent human courtesy and kindness. There's all sorts of limitations. But actually the limitations are there for our good. Even God limited himself to six days in that poetry of Genesis 1 and 2. Finally, there is the litmus test of humility and gratitude. Recognising that everything we get to do, all our working lives, are simply a response to the giftedness of life. When you think about it, everything that you work with, whether it's a computer on your desk, whether it's clay on a potter's wheel, whether it's the roof over your head, whatever it is that you're working with and alongside is a gift. You didn't invent it, magic it out of thin air. And actually, even our lives are a gift. I often say, try this thought experiment. Imagine that you weren't born where you were actually born. Imagine instead that you were born in a refugee camp on the outskirts of Syria. Imagine that's where you were born. What would your working life your home life, your family life, look today. Did you decide to be born when you are born rather than that? Absolutely not. It was a gift. Pure privilege. Pure grace. Actually, our working lives, the whole of our lives, are meant to be a response to the giftedness of what we have put in front of us. Just as Adam and Eve were meant to look at this incredible garden around them, and God says, look, it's for you, it's a gift. They were meant to respond in wisdom. All of life is a gift. And it's the gift of working on God's behalf, bringing order out of chaos, bringing creative fruitfulness wherever we go and in whatever we're doing, whether you're in parenting children or working at an office desk or leading a team or cleaning the house or talking to your friends over the garden gate. Whatever it is, we're meant to be doing God's work in his world. And we remember that every part of that world is precious to him. Each person is precious to him. That we're to work within the limitations of life and of health and of wisdom. And most of all, we're to recognise that all of it is a gift from God. And it's about responding to him. John's going to come and lead us in a couple of songs by way of response. And in a few minutes' time, the children will come and rejoin us. But I'd love us, just, just in the moment or two before we sing simply in our mind's eye to think about what it is that we're going to be working at this week. And if you can't sort of define what your work is, it's simply, well, what do you feel at the end of the week you need rest from? What do you need rest from? If you're based at home, your work will be the daily chores, maybe. Uh, the, the supporting a family, the, the connection with friends. If you're in an office, I guess it's fairly clear what your work is. If you're some other context. What is it you need rest from? And can you see in these pages of Genesis the value God places on that work, however menial, however pressured, as extending and continuing the work of God, of bringing order out of chaos and fruitful creativeness? And would you in these songs simply ask your Heavenly Father to give you wisdom to work with him.